0: Polycarp, disciple of John, the Apostle John, lived for for our Lord, preached our Lord, served our Lord. And at the end of his life, he was captured, and the governor confronted him and pressed him further and said, Swear and I will set you free. Revile Christ. Deny Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp answered, For 86 years, I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When the proconsul yet again pressed him and he said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since you are vainly urgent that, as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian." And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. (laughs) Proconsul answered, I have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you don't change your attitude. Call them, replied the old man. We cannot change our attitude if it means a change from better to worse. But it is a splendid thing to change from cruelty to justice. If you make light of the beast, retorted the governor, I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. Polycarp answered, "'The fire you threaten burns for a time "'and is soon extinguished. "'There is a fire you know nothing about, "'the fire of the judgment to come "'and of eternal punishment, "'the fire reserved for the ungodly. "'But why do you hesitate? "'Do what you want.' "'The proconsul was amazed "'and sent the crier to stand in the middle of the arena "'and announced three times, "'Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian!' Then a shout went up from every throat that Polycarp must be burnt alive. And he died a martyr for our king. I start with that story because it's an illustration for us of two stories we're going to study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. The example of Christ and the example of Peter that Mark beautifully weaves together or purposely weaves together to stress to us the importance of of being unashamed for the Gospel. Unashamed for our King. I read that about Polycarp and I think, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if someone was coming with, with a torch to the sticks that are around my feet. Could I do that? I'd like to say I could. But boy, that, that, that's the question this morning. Could I stand for my Lord? And he wasn't just standing for our Lord. He was using every question as an opportunity to teach a little bit more of the gospel. Just a little bit more. This morning, I pray that we are challenged to be that bold. That we are challenged to not shrink from the gospel, to not shrink from saying, I am a Christian, but to stand up and seize the moment and boldly proclaim our Lord. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 verse 53. And as we've been studying through Mark, we know the last couple of weeks we saw Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and spend time praying there and the disciples not even able to stay awake and pray with him. And then we see that the soldiers come and Jesus arrested and drug away last week. And all the disciples abandon him and scatter. But Jesus is committed to the purpose. He's committed to bringing salvation to those who will believe. He's committed to the cross. And so that's where we come today is, okay, what happens next? And we see an example of Christ, we see an example of Peter, and we're confronted with the choice, what will our example be? What will our legacy be? And we'll start in verse 53 and we'll take both stories. We'll look at 53 through 65 and then 66 through 72. But in this first story we see in the face of deadly consequences, Jesus seized the opportunity to proclaim his work and his relationship with the Father. It's point number one on your notes. Jesus seized the opportunity to proclaim his work and relationship with the Father. If you remember a word out of that, remember the word seize. seizing the opportunity, seizing the moment. Let's start reading at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Just a little bit of background so we know what's going on here. We see Jesus in, in Mark here being led to to the the courtyard, to the home of the high priest. This is Caiaphas. We know, though, that this actually wasn't the first place he was taken. Mark, he's he's the man of action, right? So he's just getting to it, cutting to the chase. This is the part I want to tell you the story about. We know from John that this was actually the second phase of the Jewish trial. And in your notes, I have the the three phases of the Jewish trial. It's helpful for us to, to picture what's happening that Thursday night, Friday morning. And they take him from the garden in the first place, the first phase that we know from John chapter 18 is that they took him to the former high priest's house, Annas. And Annas questions him there and, and the, Annas is actually the father-in-law to Caiaphas, so the high priest is, is just running in the family and he is still respected by many in Jewish circles as having the authority of the high priest. So they take Jesus there first, and that's the first phase. And he's questioned, and Annas doesn't get anywhere. And so then he sends him to Caiaphas, which is the second phase. And that's where we pick up the story here in verse 53. Caiaphas is the current high priest. He's been the current high priest for a number of years now, which is rare. Which means he had a pretty good working relationship with the Romans. Which is not necessarily a good thing to put on your resume. But he was there, he was good at working with them, and so they come to him, and he's the one that said, perhaps we should kill this one man for the sake of the nation, for the sake of all. And so he's been the driving force behind Jesus' arrest and eventually his crucifixion and his death. There will be a third phase to the Jewish um, trial. and we'll, uh, Verse 1 of chapter 15 just briefly mentions that. Because once it becomes morning, they need to have an official gathering. They need to make this all official. And so we have three phases of the Jewish trial before Jesus is sent off to the Roman side of the trial. There's three sages there as well. But that's the scene. It's the second phase. He's already been to Annas' house. He's brought in and they are having the, they've brought together the Sanhedrin. We see that from the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. It's always a designation of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And and they they throw together this trial. Middle of the night still. Maybe two, one, two o'clock in the morning. And we see in verse 54, Mark bringing in the other story just at the beginning. And he's sandwiching two stories together again. And And whenever Mark is sandwiching stories, he introduces one and tells another and then comes back to the first story. And whenever he does that, he's intending us to read them together, which is why we're preaching a little bit larger portion this morning, because Mark's intention was that they be studied together and understood in light of each other. Verse 54, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now that just sets an interesting scene. Jesus is in an upper room. Sanhedrin's gathered around him in a semicircle. They're starting to try him and question him. People are gathered in the courtyard and, and Peter comes. And it's a cold night. Jerusalem's up 2,500 feet and it's a, the middle of the night. So he's around a fire warming himself and the, the firelight dancing on his face. And, and around this circle are the guards that just arrested his, his rabbi. So I don't even know how he does that. But, but he's there and, and maybe watching to see what happened, maybe feeling guilty that they all scattered. But he's following from a distance, probably in shock, stunned, and he finds himself hanging out with Jesus' enemies. The fire. But then in verse 55, Mark comes back to the scene in the upper room. And these, these scenes are happening at the same time. And he comes back to the scene of, of the, the second phase of Jesus' trial, and as we look through this text, I'd like to focus on four things that Jesus faced, and then what his response to those four things were. The first thing that he faced was an unjust, predecided capital trial. Catch all that? An unjust, predecided, capital trial. They were out for the death penalty. Knew it from the start, had decided it from the start, decided his guilt from the start. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And so you get this picture that they have brought this trial together and they're going around asking and trying to find people that will testify against Jesus because the entire goal of the night is let's find a way to justify killing Jesus. Okay, not something that you want to hear if you're Jesus, or if you go into a group and they're like, okay, our whole goal tonight is to kill you. That's, that's really what's happening here, and they have it all arranged. What's interesting here is, is this actually is a trial, and some commentators have tried to say, well, it's not really a trial, it's, it's really a pre-trial, it's, it's really just a gathering evidence. No, the Sanhedrin was there, this was a trial. But the problem was this was an unjust illegal trial. We know a little bit later, 190 years later, we found some documents that that have given us the code for trials. And the question is, well, okay, that's a lot later. Maybe it changed. But we know from the text that most of these rules were already in place. Some of the rules that are really interesting to, to understand this. Capital cases, cases where they were seeking the death penalty, were only to be tried during the day. Time was it middle of the morning, middle of the early morning, two, three in the morning, one thirty, somewhere in there, violating their own rules. that's why the third phase of the trial in chapter 15, verse one. We have to get a little daytime trial to sort of confirm everything and make it look legal. Another rule: trials were not to be conducted on Sabbath Eve or on the eve of a festival day. This Thursday night, Friday morning, early was the sabbath eve capital cases third rule were supposed to begin with reasons for acquittal not convictions they would go to great lengths to seek someone that could testify for acquittal and so their their policy their rules were as you always strove for acquittal you always if you were seeking witnesses you were asking for witnesses that could clear the name of this person You never went out and sought witnesses that would testify against them. They had already come. They were the ones bringing the charge. And so now your whole intention was was to try to find innocence. That was some of their protections in the system. In verse 55, we see the whole council was seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Another rule. Verdicts of acquittal could, could be reached the same day But conviction must be the following day after a night's sleep. So, so in a trial, in a, in a death penalty trial, they could, they could acquit the person that same day. Right then, if, if there's no evidence and they, they find them not guilty, they could do that right then. But if they were to find them guilty and condemn them to death, they must wait at least overnight, sleep on it, and then come to that decision the next day. Didn't happen. False witnesses under the code were required to suffer the same penalty as the accused if they were found to be a false witness. We have no evidence of that happening. A lot of false witnesses, no extra executions. The court was to meet in the inner courts of the temple. In the, in the, um, they had different chambers there, chamber of hewn stone actually, not in the high priest's home. But here we find the assembly hastily gathered in Caiaphas' home, probably for secrecy, not to stir up the crowds. Let's just get this done. We have a plan. We have the witnesses in place. Let's do this. And so Jesus faced an unjust, pre-decided capital trial. So it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair by any stretch of the imagination. He had a case. He never even goes there. It's not the point. We know that as part of this trial and the reason why the Romans had to be part of this is at this point, the Jews, their, their right to execute criminals had been taken away from them by, by the Romans. That was something the Romans held very close because it was a, a, an aspect of power. And so the Jews could come and say he's guilty of death, deserves the death penalty. They could not execute it. If they could, Jesus would have been stoned, not crucified on a cross. And so this whole proceeding had this ring of it doesn't even really matter. It's a, it's a kangaroo court pre-decided in an effort to now find reasons for the Romans to convict him so that way they could kill him. It's hard to see our Lord and Savior being treated this way. It's hard to see. And we we go th- in America. We go to great lengths for our court system to try to be fair and unbiased. And we all know stories of well, that wasn't fair and unbiased. And I, I've sat on juries several times that I get kicked off every time just because I. They ask me what I do. And I say I'm a pastor, and they're like, bye. Um, both the prosecution and the defense, they both think that I'm I'm in favor of the other one. And, and but all that to try to have an unbiased jury. In this case, there was no attempts of that. No attempts at all. Verse 56 then goes on to show us the second thing Jesus faced. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And Jesus faced people lining up to lie about him, to give false testimony. It's the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, they didn't have cell phones. How do you get this many people to testify? It was prearranged. It was prearranged. They, they had the people ready. And Jesus comes and He has to sit there and listen to person after person after person tell lies about Him with His life on the line. Now we know that to, in a capital charge, they must have at least two witnesses and they must agree Precisely. And that's the problem here, is when you have a bunch of people lying, it's really hard to get your lies straight. It's just really, and they couldn't do it. And so the, the high priest is getting more and more frustrated, because person after person comes, and they just don't agree. They just don't agree. People were lining up to lie about him. Third thing Jesus faced, injustice that Jesus faced as people were misunderstanding and misusing his words against him. Don't you hate that when someone takes what you've said, twists it a little bit, and then uses it as a weapon against you? That's what they're doing against him. Look at verse 57. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And uh, Sorry, I mixed a couple of verses there. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say... I will destroy this temple that is made up, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Flip over to John chapter 2. Let's look at what Jesus actually said. Because he did say something like this, they just got it wrong. John chapter 2 verse 19. It's early in his ministry, after the first cleansing of the temple. This is probably two, three years before this time. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Does he say, I will destroy this temple? No, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? And so they used that, which Jesus was talking about his body, he was talking about his death and resurrection, wasn't even talking about the temple that took 46 years to to build. And they're standing there testifying, he said he's going to destroy this place of worship. He said he's going to destroy what Herod spent all this time, 46 years building. Let's kill him. See, in that culture, especially to the Romans, you actually could get the death penalty for destroying a place of worship. So they were accusing him falsely. Misunderstanding him. Missed the whole point about his death and resurrection. And what he was here to do. And that he was here was to destroy the the need for animal sacrifices. And the need for separation from God. And that you had to restore through these animal sacrifices. He was here to become that sacrifice. And Jesus sat there. And he listened. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And the high priest here, he's getting a little agitated. No one's agreed on testimony. He has no grounds to kill Jesus yet. That's his whole goal. That's the whole purpose of this trial. So now his next thought is, well, I can't get any of the witnesses to agree. They're not thinking straight this time of the morning anyway. And so let's just go Jesus into to condemning himself. And he says, Okay, are you gonna say something? What do you have to say about their accusations? And we see in verse 62 or sorry, sixty-one. But he remained silent and made no answer. He remained silent and made no answer. He's gonna answer in a moment. But he's not going to answer the false charges. He's not going to get into a discussion of the trial isn't fair and, and you have false witnesses and why haven't you, you condemned them and well that's not what I really said about the temple. All of that's pointless because all of that would distract from the message that he's there to give. Why he's come and who he is. That is his focus. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as he sits there silent. In Isaiah chapter fifty three, verse seven, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There was no need to defend against untrue charges. He didn't need to get bogged down with the unfair, the untrue, the hurtful statements, just as we don't need to do that in the body of Christ. We need to be, have a, a, a laser focus on why we're here to proclaim Christ, to be unashamed of the gospel. The fourth thing that Jesus faced jumping down, we're not going to, we'll, we'll get to it in a moment, but verse 65. The results of this. And some begin to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Fourth thing was mockery and humiliation. Mockery, humiliation, and beatings. And so Jesus is sitting here, unfairly charged. People tearing apart his character. Tearing apart who he is, and his purpose. People lying about him. At the end, and he knows this will happen if he answers, at the end he will be spit on, which was the the ultimate humiliation. He will be hit. He will be mocked. So what does he do? What does he do? And that's the sinner portion. Let's pick it up in verse 61. Because I know what I would do. But what does he do? Verse 61, he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Different question. Now we're getting to the heart of why he came. Are you the Christ? The word for Christ there is Messiah. Son of the blessed was a term that they used for son of God. So they didn't use God's name, son of the blessed. And so finally, the high priest says, okay, what is your purpose? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Now that's a question Jesus could answer. That's a question that Jesus insisted on answering because that gets to the heart of denying His purpose and who He is or proclaiming it. And we read in verse 62, And Jesus said, I am. And right there, their minds are going, that's a name for God. That's a name for God. I am? How can He say that? Does He just mean He's agreeing to it? Or is He saying He's God? And just so there's no, no mistake, Jesus goes on, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so He says, I am. I am God. And just in case you missed it, you will see me at his right hand, the right hand of power, the one that sat on the right had all of the authority of God. He is saying he is God here. But he's very intentional in which aspect of God he is saying. He is saying the God of power. Out of the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, Daniel says. And he's presenting himself as a a judge, one of power, that is coming back to take care of business. Jesus here is quoting two different Old Testament passages, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, and we've studied this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And they saw that as a view of the Messiah, that the Messiah would sit at the right hand of God. And so for Jesus to say, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, He is saying, that verse applies to Me. Daniel 7, verse 13 is the other one He's bringing in. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came One like the Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And we see there he uses reference to the Son of Man coming with the clouds with the Ancient of Days. He's saying, I am God. I am the Messiah. I will come to judge. You judge me now, but I will come as the right hand of power to judge you. We see the result. Verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? Good thing, because they didn't have any that could agree. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And we see Jesus in the middle of these four things that he's facing, and, and the, the, the scene that was just so horrendous, boldly proclaiming, clearly proclaiming, who He was, and what He came to do. In your notes, I ask the question, what did Jesus do? He clearly proclaimed that He was Messiah and God. Knowing where it would lead, knowing it would lead to the cross, knowing it would lead to being beaten and spit on and mocked, He did not shy away from the opportunity to say who He was and what He came to do. And so the high priest got it. He got it. He tears his garments, a sign of grief, and and say, this is blasphemy. The man says he's God. One dare not do that. He is deserving of death. And then the verse in 65. And some begin to spit on him, to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy, they would they would cover his eyes because one of their, the things out of Isaiah is that the Messiah was to be able to have the gift of prophecy. And so they'd they'd play this sick game of blind men's bluff. And let's cover him and someone just punch him in the face as hard as you can. Okay, Jesus, who was it? Say you're the Messiah. Prophesy. You're supposed to have that gift. And he was silent. He didn't answer them. Didn't need to get into that. His answer stood that he was the Messiah, that he was God, and he came to bring salvation. And the guards received him with blows. When they give him to the Roman guards, they're like, well, they're hitting him. Why don't I? And I think of my kids. They'll be going after each other sometimes, and I'll be like, stop that you're not supposed to strangle them on the ground. <laughs> Got to have three when mom gets home. And, and you, you, you pull them apart. And you say, stop. And they're like, ah, they did this. They did this. And, and it's like, well, no, no. I'll take care of it. And, and that's never good enough for them, is it? You know, one of them, I, I won't use name, they all do it. One of them walk by after I say that, and they'll, they'll see if I'm not looking. And they'll go, pfft. That's a little bit of what's happening here. They can't kill Jesus. They don't have the authority to execute Him. And so they just start mocking Him and hitting Him and and humiliating Him before they hand Him over to the Romans. So the first half of the text, think of the word seize. Seize the opportunity. In the face of deadly consequences, Jesus seized the opportunity to proclaim His work and His relationship with the Father. He was unashamed of who he was. But then we get to verse 66. And this is the contrast that Mark is setting up that he wants us to see, that he wants to drive home to us, to stir us to action and to stir us to a decision. Point number two, in the face of supposed consequences, Jesus was in the face of deadly consequences, in the face of supposed consequences, Peter shrunk from the opportunity to proclaim Jesus and denied even knowing Him. The word to remember out of that is shrink. Shrink. Jesus seized the opportunity. Peter shrunk from the opportunity. Let's read in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. We see a sequence in in Peter's denials. And in this first sequence, it's evasion. It's only a, a young girl coming to him, she thinks she recognizes him, saying, "Oh, you're, you're, you were with the Nazarene, that Nazarene was a, a, a put down." And instead of just saying something right then, when the consequences would not have been drastic, Peter evades the question. Do you catch that in verse 68? I, I, I don't know. I, what do you mean, huh? Huh? Yeah. He's evading. He's evading. He's cowering from a servant girl. As we go through Peter, at each point, Mark's intention is that we put ourselves in Peter's shoes and say, do we do this? Do people come to us sometimes and say, so, I, I hear you're a Christian, huh? What? Yeah. And we evade the question. Or people will ask things like, so, what'd you do this weekend? Well, Saturday I had a, a meeting with some of my friends and then went home and had a great time with my kids what'd you do sunday saw a bunch of friends it's a good day and we've cowered and we've evaded and we've denied peter shrunk from the opportunities he had an opportunity here to say yes i'm a follower of jesus as polycarp ended up doing with every question would you like to know more about him Would you like to know why I'm a follower of Jesus? Peter doesn't do that. First part of his downward spiral is evasion. Second one is just a little phrase you see at the the end of verse 68 there. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. The gateway is the archway leading into the courtyard. And it's dark. It's away from the fire. This is still the middle of the night. And so we see Peter, the next thing he does is he starts to cower away from everyone and blend in. Well, if I just stand here in the shadows, no one will know. No one will see me. I won't be asked those questions again. So he cowered by blending in. Slinks away to the archway. And I think again, of how many times I've been timid and I've slinked away from conversations that could have led to sharing the gospel, that could have led to saying, I'm a Christian. And Peter's just blending in. Story goes on, verse 69. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, Now she's bringing more people into it. That man, he's one of them. This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And, and the, the, the Greek verb there is an imperfect, which means he's denying it and denying it and denying it. It's an ongoing denial. And so before it was, I don't know what you mean. Now it's like, I really don't know him. I don't know him at all. Why would you ask that? And he's going on and on and on, which is a sure sign of guilt usually. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Now it's not just the girl. Now it's a group. He has again an opportunity to proclaim and to profess. But now there's a crowd and it's how do I look in front of the crowd? What will they think? What will they do? And he denies yet again. And It's interesting in verse 70, the, the question is certainly you are one of them. You are one of them for you are a Galilean. And, and the. Sorry, at the end of 69. This man is one of them. And at this point, understand it's not even just a denial of Christ, but now it's a denial of brothers in Christ. Now it's a denial of the whole group. He's determined to protect himself. Read on in verse 70. We see Jesus denying, he, Peter denies Jesus and the other disciples. Now in verse 70, he lies under oath and curses that he does not know Christ. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. The accent would give it away. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Basically, what he's doing is saying something to the effect of, may God strike me dead if I know Him. That's serious. This has escalated to a point where now he's denying his very knowledge of Christ, his relationship with Christ, and he's willing to take God's curses if he's lying. How do you get to that point? They knew he didn't belong there. His speech gave him away. Just like if we are living for Christ, people should know we don't belong here. It should give us away. But he was willing to lie and invoke God's name to convince people that he had nothing to do with Jesus. Verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered what we saw just a couple weeks ago. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. We know from one of the other Gospels that at that moment, Jesus was was coming into visual sight of Peter and they, they had eye contact. And Peter broke and he wept because he had shrunk from opportunities and he had denied Christ. And Mark here has given us two examples. Jesus, who under extreme duress and under extreme consequences stood tall and said, I am the Christ the Son of God. And we see Peter, who who the consequences might have even been minimal of professing here, say, I do not know Jesus. I have no idea why He's here. And Mark's intention in bringing these stories together is to show the example of Christ, but bring us as the hearer to a decision point, to a point of saying, which one are we? Who will we copy? Who will we pattern our life after? Will we take every opportunity that we can? Every opportunity to say, I am a Christian. I am a believer. Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. He died on the cross and rose again the third day. Will I take every opportunity to do that? Or will I be too scared of what people think? Will I be too nervous to turn the conversation that direction to the best news that person will ever hear? And that should get us to the core. One of the things that I take great hope out of this passage is, I know what happens to Peter. This isn't the end of the story for Peter. And so many times when we come to, the, to recognize the depth of our sin, as Peter here is weeping, and he breaks down at the end, and when we come to recognize the depth of our sin, we then are in a place to recognize the depth of God's grace. And then we have a story to tell. Peter goes on to be instrumental in the founding of the church, the rock that the church is built on. Jesus uses this man that denies him three times, that asks God to kill him if he knows him. And he experienced the depth of God's grace. If God can use Peter, God can use you, he can use me. We're all just cracked pots, treasures and jars of clay. Vance Havner said, the Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. That's what happens with Peter. That's what can happen with you and I. As we come to the decision point of these two passages, though, we ask ourselves, why? Why did Peter go down this path? And we see through the conversations, he's, he's going down this path for several reasons. One is to protect himself. He doesn't want to be spit on. He doesn't want to be beaten. He doesn't want to be crucified. And so the, the self-protection and, and making sure no one says anything about me or does anything to me becomes more important than sharing the Gospel to him. And really at its heart, his love for self is more important than his love for God. That challenges us. When we go through our weeks, when we miss opportunities, we need to ask ourselves the question, is this out of love of self? Is this out of love for God? Which one's which one's winning? We see Peter here worried more about the approval of others and what others will think, the bystanders, than what Jesus will think, the one that will catch his eye as the rooster crows the second time he realizes, I was thinking about approval from the wrong people and the wrong person. Men and women, our core should crave God's approval and not care about anything else. And that should be a driving factor, even if it means embarrassing ourselves, even if it means entering conversations we're not comfortable with. Am I true and unashamed of my Lord? Will He approve? So how do we do this? How do we put this into practice? I'd like to give some ideas this morning as we end. We have an unparalleled opportunity in this day and age to proclaim our faith. Communication can happen quicker. Communication can happen easier than it ever has before. So my challenge to you is, are we taking advantage of that? Just some simple things. Some simple ways that we will not be ashamed of the Gospel, that we will say, I am a Christian. That we will seize the moment instead of shrink from the opportunity. Little things like, I encourage you, how many of you are on Facebook? We need to talk. No, no. (laughs) None of you are obsessed with it. None of you are stalking. or Yeah, okay. Um, What if every day this week you posted something on Facebook about your faith? And and I'm not talking getting into people's face and you don't have to, to post on there saying, by the way, you're all going to hell. What if you said, you know what, I read this verse today and this is what God taught me. And we're proclaiming, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. How many of you have unsaved friends on your friend list on Facebook? That's a mission field. Every one of those friends should know you are a believer and you are unashamed of the gospel. Tomorrow morning, you go to work. People ask you how your weekend was incorporate into normal conversation body life and church life. You know what? I went to church yesterday morning and, and God really taught me this. Or it was encouraging because I prayed with so-and-so. And, and you, they might not understand. They might think you're a little weird. Will we shrink from the opportunity? Or will we seize the opportunity? I'm willing to be a little weird for Jesus. To stand like Polycarp did and say, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. And I don't care who knows it. Maybe it's something as simple as, as checking in on Facebook. I learned how to do that this morning after about 20 minutes. You can check in to, 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 to Village Bible Church. What if your non-Christian friends see that because it's just a simple thing, but sometimes we shrink from that and say, well, I don't want people to know I go to church. March Madness is on. <laughs> They're going to think I missed some basketball games. Yeah! To be with the Lord of the universe! To worship Him! Some of you are going to class tomorrow. Stack of books. What if you carry your Bible with your books? Put it on top. Someone asks you what it is, be willing to answer them. It's my Bible. That's what God wrote for me. It's where he tells me about what he did. Do you want to hear what he did? We may be shuffling a little uncomfortably right now. Well, I don't know. You're messing with what people think of me. I would argue we're messing with what people think of God. Bring spiritual things into normal conversation. Look for opportunities. Today, before you leave the room, start praying for someone this week that you know doesn't know Christ and pray for an opportunity just to proclaim that you are a Christian. And pray that God might take it to the Gospel then. Are we going to seize or are we going to shrink? Are we going to be like Polycarp and say, do what you will. You want to know about Christ? I'll tell you. But do what you will. Will you stand with me right now, this morning? and stand saying I am a Christian, I will stand for Christ. Because what could happen with just simple ideas like that? If every one of us in this room said, "I will make sure people know I am a Christian and that I love God." Next week we will come with stories I guarantee it of what God is doing. I guarantee it. I'm willing to go out on that limb. But God wants us to stand for Him. Jesus asked Simon in Matthew 16, 16, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Will you answer that with me this morning? Who do you say that He is? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's try that again. Who do you say that He is? You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Lord God, our Father, may we praise You at the top of our lungs. May we praise You with every moment of our lives. May everyone we come in contact with know that we live to bring You glory, that we live to praise You. Lord, challenge us with that. Give us opportunities this week that we will not shrink from. Give us the strength to not shrink from those opportunities. The insight to see a chance to proclaim, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray as you do that you will use village in a mighty way to proclaim that you are Messiah, you are God, you came to die on the cross in our place and rose again on the third day that we may live for you. Lord, may we be a church that is unashamed of the gospel prune us, refine us, do whatever it takes to make us unashamed of the gospel. We stand for you, Lord God. In Jesus' name.